Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Seth Aberton, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of British Columbia. Seth joins us to speak about his initial encounters with the writings of Emile Durkheim and how his current research on suicide was both inspired by and offers important correctives to Durkheim's famous work. Seth also reflects on whether as a discipline, we are guilty of deifying the classic theorists and whether the social theory syllabus is in need of a dramatic reworking. Thanks for joining us today, Seth. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. So we're here today to talk about Emile Durkheim. And this is always a bit of a challenge to reduce a theorist to a short introduction. But I'm wondering if you could provide that. So just telling us a little bit about who he was or, or even more importantly, what he's known for. So uh, Emile Durkheim, of course, is part of the sociological holy trinity of Marx, Durkheim and Weber. Uh, he's, you know, one of the founders of the discipline and, in fact, one of the first, if actually the first uh, professor of sociology, uh, as he was instrumental in creating the first department in France. And what he's most known for probably are two sorts of things. One is the, the problem of integration, which was a problem that both like Auguste Comte and Herbert Spencer were very interested in. But Durkheim sort of spent his entire career trying to answer that question of what holds a modern, urban, uh, democratic, industrial society together uh, vis-a-vis sort of what he would have considered traditional pre-modern societies. And, you know, the other thing he's probably most known for is the sort of empirical efforts to, you know, scientifically study the things that he was talking about. And, you know, most famously, he wrote a book on suicide and, you know, attempted to use multivariate statistics for the first time to analyze the, the sort of social forces that he imagined were central to shaping behavior at the individual level. And then uh, turning to uh, his last work, The Elementary Forms of Religious Life, you know, he turned towards qualitative ethnographic research, not, not his own, but uh, already existing ethnographic research to kind of explore, uh, again, the problem of integration, but more from like sort of social processes social psychological perspective. So Holy Trinity was the word you used to describe Durkheim's position in the field. So clearly he has a lot of influence. But what I'm wondering is, do you get a sense that he's not only read as required reading, but also engaged with? I I think so. You know, the discipline is, of course, fascinating in in its fads that, you know, people that come and go. But But I think of the Trinity Mark or Faber and Durkheim are probably the most read in terms of actually reading his texts rather than primary sources or sort of skimming over, you know, selections. And, you know, if you look at the Open Syllabus Project, which is a website devoted to collecting syllabi uh, all across North America and in, in every discipline and looking at what's being read, his elementary forms, uh, I think, falls into the top 15 of assigned readings. Suicide I, I, I used to think suicide was in the top four, but it, but the other three books, The Rules of the Sociological Method, Suicide, and The Division of Labor are all, you know, top like 40 assigned texts in sociological courses, both at the undergrad and grad level. I mean, I assign, you know, primary sources in my undergraduate course, and I, and I would be willing to bet most PhD programs, both in the U.S. and Canada, still assign at the very least excerpts from The Division of Labor 
and probably even the elementary forms of religious life. And some methods courses probably still read the rules or at least pieces of it. But I, I do get the sense that he's 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 really well read, at least as people are being trained. You know, I'm not so sure how many people go back and actually pour over suicide a decade or two decades into their grad, you know, professional career. But, you know, I certainly think that he's probably one of the most important classical theorists and therefore probably one of the most well assigned and well read. Yeah. So thinking about subfields within the discipline, is it fair to characterize you as someone who has an expertise probably in health and religion? Those would be the areas that you identify with? Yeah. So, you know, I specialized in theory and of course he, he's theorist. So that, that's, uh, he's, he's all over that subfield, but yeah, I would say, you know, I study suicide and mental health. So I'm, I'm sort of got my toes in medical sociology and mental health sociology. And, you so, know, so is Durkheim's influence pretty strong or evident in those areas? Is he one of the core people in, in, in that, those topics as well? You know, I, I'm not, I don't know. I, I know that implicitly he is, I, I know that, there's a lot of interest in social capital and health, which, you know, Durkheim, of course, never used those words. Uh, those are more attributed to like James Coleman and Bourdieu. But the idea of social capital is very deeply uh, ingrained in Durkheimian ideas. And so in a lot of ways, I think his, his implicit footprint is, is probably larger in the medical sociology than his explicit one. But there certainly are people who you know, directly cite and draw inspiration from Durkheim, including obviously myself and my collaborator, Anna Muller. In the, in the sociology of religion, he's probably far more relevantly cited, um, in part because the elementary forms of religious life is such a sort of central text in the classical tradition of why, why are we interested in religion, you know, the origins of human societies in ritual itself, as well as like the link between ritual and belief, practice and belief. And so I, I, he's probably he's probably a little bit more salient or visible there than in medical sociology. But he certainly is is relevant to both subfields. So if you don't mind, I'm always interested in, in traveling back, taking a, a trip down memory lane. When did you first hear about Durkheim or, or when did you become aware of his ideas? So that's an, uh, it's a funny question. I don't really remember my undergraduate that well, but I do know that we used Ritzer's textbook because I still have it. And I, I am, you know, I know I heard Durkheim's name in that course. And, I, and I'm sure I heard it in the Intro to Social course because, you know, Durkheim, Marx, Weber are always mentioned in Introduction to Sociology courses. But I would probably say if I really was being honest about it, it was probably in my first semester of my master's program at San Diego State classical theory uh, or like more like a blended theory course so it was we, we started with the classics and we you know we read Kozer's masters of social thought sociological thought or social thought you know i think that's probably where i really first was made aware or engaged in sort of more than sort of superficial level which shows something about our undergraduate experience so you were a sociology major who ended up going forward with this interest and still it's kind of vague <laughs> as you think back about it yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the textbook approach has its weaknesses. The the biographical approach that often comes with the textbook approach has its weaknesses. And I mean, there's some pedagogical reasons for it. And there's some sort of historical reasons for why it's institutionalized in the discipline. But yeah, I, I just... It, you know, it, it what ends up happening ultimately is it all depends on your professor and how well or how committed they are to making these 
theorists and their theories come alive in the class because, you know, my undergraduates are always saying the same thing. You know, they think theory is going to be super dry and it can be super dry. They think it's going to be super abstract and it can be super abstract. And not everybody is like a specialist in theory. I mean, that's just, it's not as relevant as it was 25, 30 years ago in the discipline. And so it's a, it's really like a gamble, right? Who is teaching it and what's their favorite theorist? What's their favorite, you know, theoretical tradition? And do they have the same excitement and passion for Durkheim as they have for say Marx or for Zimmel or for, you know, whoever happens to be their pet person. When you re-encounter Durkheim in your master's program, were you immediately drawn into the text? Did the ideas resonate with you? Do you recall how you felt about doing this reading again? Well, you know, I, I, I think the first text I encountered was the rules of the sociological method. And, you know, I don't really recall the, the actual text itself being interesting, but the, the second preface, and I still cite the second preface to the, the 19, I think it was 1985 edition of the book, was really fascinating because it was, you could see his transition from the division of labor and sort of the structural material approach to discovering emotions and like assembly, which really becomes his sort of ritual theory. And, and so like that, like kind of drew me in, but what really I think pulled me in was the professor of my theory course. He was teaching um, an undergrad theory course and he asked if I wanted to lecture on Durkheim because he, he kind of got the sense that I was into the more functionalists just from my dispositions, I guess. And I, I totally agreed to do this. It was the first time I'd ever stood in front of a college class. And uh, I, so I had to read the elementary forms because we were having to, we we're, were doing the, the uh, later Durkheim. I was really blown away by that text. I mean, I'm still blown away by that text. I still assign it in a variety of classes. You know, it, it has all the problems of Durkheim's writing, the circular, the circularity in the chapters, the sort of lawyer the legalistic side of his writing where he sort of sets up his uh, opponent's argument as if he accepts it. And then you start to believe this argument and then he like knocks it down. And I think those things are kind of tough for English speaking audiences, for undergraduate audiences to kind of read and understand. But the genius of the text was there when I read it then. And then, I mean, it's still there now. I mean, it's probably one of the most important things that sociologists have ever written. You know, and it's still obviously very relevant today. So, did you continue to get drawn back to his writing after that? So you you read in the course and you had a chance to lecture, and then did his influence stay, or was it something you drifted away from until you started to teach theory yourself? There's just so much to read and uh, so many different classes. I think that eventually, you know, Durkheim took a back seat to you know I was taking a course in social psychology, and so I was really getting into you know, the UCLA school in the 60s, like Ralph Turner and Garfinkel. And, uh, you know, I mean, I kept returning to him, but I don't think it was until much later when I was like really, you know, knee deep in comprehensive exams where I started to re-engage with some of the ideas and, and start to really think about, you know, what I had learned for the last maybe four years and how that uh, sort of built upon what I thought I knew about Durkheim. And, and now, you know, of course, teaching it, you know, we, we're constantly reading these things over and over. And, and also for, you know, my particular research on suicide, uh, I've read that text so many different times. And it's not boring. You know, I think a lot of people might assume that reading something many times is boring, but there's something new every time you start, sort of dig into those texts, for sure. As we start to transition to thinking about 
your own research as, as you've gone forward as a scholar, was there a particular idea of Durkheim's that had an influence on you and guided you as you started to choose a project or, or figure out how you wanted to approach studying the world? I, I think I always come back to the problem of integration. And, and you know, what's really interesting about this discipline, and, and probably of all disciplines to some degree, is that it's like politics. The pendulum sort of swings one way, and then there's always this sort of counter swing. And for the last, I, I would say, probably since the 70s and even maybe since the 60s, sociology has been extraordinarily preoccupied with stratification and inequality and conflict. And there's you know, really good reasons for why the discipline, and it's important that the discipline is engaged that. But, you know, this problem of integration that is like, how does a small group, how does a community, how does an organization, how does a school, how does a society hold itself together, you know, still remains an extraordinary extremely relevant, extremely important, and extremely interesting question. And in many ways, you know, it's at the center of sociology because we would think with all the divisions and all the potential divisions with the the inequities that are um, quite salient in American society and to a lesser degree Canadian society, but also the, the lines of inequality that are often invisible in those places, you know, we would think that society would be at war with itself all the time, that groups would be at constant conflict. But in fact, you know, the vast majority of our lives are relatively stable and predictable. And, you know, groups seem to continue to do their thing, even in the face of difference, even in the face of conflict or, you know, simmering conflict. And so integrations just still remain so interesting, so fascinating. And so that, that idea has kind of stuck with me. I mean, that's been central to nearly everything that I've, that I've studied or every research question that I've sort of pursued. That provides a perfect chance to transition to thinking about your own research. So do you have any project or particular aspects of your work that you think demonstrates the influence of Durkheim or your interest in integration? In 2012, uh, my colleague and collaborator, Anna Muller, and I uh, were both at the University of Memphis together as assistant professors. And you know, we had sort of the synergy going right from the sort of get-go. And, you know, one of the things that we both discussed uh, over and over was thinking about how someone who was trained as a theorist uh, like myself and far more interested in theory than empirics uh, could work with and, you know, synthesize that sort of skill set with somebody like Anna, who was, you know, really well-trained network analyst, uh, far more interested in empirics than theory. And how could we blend those two talents together? You know, we started thinking about classic texts. And, you know, Durkheim's Suicide was, of course, this sort of like central text, this inspiration of how to do sociology, this sort of demonstration of the power of sociology. And, you know, at the core of that text are two basic principles. The first one is that the structure of social relationships shape the structure of uh, suicide. And the second principle being the structure of social relationships are shaped by integration and or regulation. And at, at the core, then, what Durkheim is really suggesting is that groups, you know, societies or categories of people like married people versus single people or, you know, religious denominations like Protestants or Catholics or regional distinctions like rural versus urban spaces uh, reveal um, different levels of integration and different levels of regulation. Now, you know, Durkheim, of course, famously did not define these concepts very clearly, and he often conflated 
them. In fact, some people have argued that integration is the only sort of dimension of suicide. Sometimes integration caused regulation. Sometimes they operated independent of each other. But in any case, you know, it's very clear that this is sort of what he was thinking. And, and of course, famously, he argues that it's sort of like a curvilinear relationship. So too little integration or regulation weakens the protective benefits of society and increases the rate of suicide in a group or a category of people. And too much of it should do the same. So there's sort of like this Goldilocks like, you know, moment where there's some sort of perfect level of integration and regulation. So we ran with this idea and wanted to kind of test it, kind of like to think about, well, how does it operate? And as we started to sort of review the literature on suicide in uh, sociology for the last, I guess, maybe 50 years or so, what we were starting to find was two things. One, you know, most people were committed to simply just retesting Durkheim's principles. And two, there was this sort of body of literature that had been gone completely ignored by most mainstream sociologists that sort of challenged the Durkheimian theoretical argument. And, and that is that there seemed to be a connection between people exposed to the suicidality of a friend or family member and their own risk of being suicidal themselves. And so we started to explore that question a little bit. We had the adolescent health data, the National Longitudinal Adolescent Health Data, just to clarify, mm-hmm. so did that increase the risk of suicide or decrease the risk when they they were uh, aware or exposed to someone else's? Um, so, it, given the fact that it was it was all cross sectional research, all that we we knew that there was an association. So, okay, kids who were exposed to it had a higher likelihood of having suicidal thoughts themselves, and in some cases, although it, the evidence was a little bit less clear, they were at risk of suicidal behavior, and so. We took the opportunity to use this longitudinal data set to kind of look at the causality behind this. And so we were able to control for whether or not kids who had never had suicidal thoughts or behaviors at time one, but who were exposed to a friend or family member's suicide at that time, whether or not a year later they um, had suicidal thoughts or behaviors and whether five years later they still had those suicidal thoughts or behaviors. And so we were able to demonstrate that you know, actually being exposed increased the risk of teenagers and girls in particular, when they were exposed to a friend's uh, suicidal behavior, were, you know, at a significant risk of developing suicidal behaviors themselves, of attempting suicide themselves. And, you know, this work really kind of raised the question of just how, just how important social relationships were, just how protective they were. Because the Durkheim sort of this, this curvilinear relationship that Durkheim suggests that is too much and too little has really been, the, the emphasis has really been on the too little part the, for the last 120 years in sociology. That is, in Durkheim's text, he argues that the too much integration and the too much regulation are sort of historical artifacts of like traditional pre-modern societies and that they shouldn't exist in modernity because the big question, of course, for Durkheim is what happens when people move out of like the rural farm communities and move into these urban metropolitan spaces where people don't know each other and where relationships are often instrumental and not normative and life moves much faster and capitalism sets material goals instead of like spiritual and communal goals. And so Durkheim himself focused on the 
on what happens when there's too little integration and too little regulation. And so what we were finding was that, well, actually connectedness is not always a good thing. It's not always a protective thing. And that led us to sort of asking questions that, well, the data simply just didn't exist to answer. And that was, why are some people who are exposed to a suicidal friend or family member at risk and others aren't? And, you know, to get to that sort of question, to get at that question, we started doing qualitative research. And, you know, the more we started to do qualitative research, the more we found that social relationships are protective under some circumstances. But what we need to know is the content of the relationship. That is, what is the cultural um, meanings of the relationship? Is suicide normative? Is self-harm a, a sort of like typical thing that people do? And what is the quality of the social relationship? So people can be codependent and tightly integrated with another person, but that relationship can be quite abusive, right? And lead to all sorts of pathologies and abnormalities. And so, you know, Durkheim's ideas are still so relevant, but there was this sort of like gap in how people, how sociologists had been trying to study it and, you know, sort of like actually what was happening. That is clusters of suicide occur, suicide diffusion occurs, and it's not for a lack of connectedness, but in fact, because of integration. That raises a question I'm always interested in, which is, do you see your work building on Durkheim's ideas, taking this foundation and then filling the gap, kind of improving some of the areas that he missed on? Or is it that you're showing his ideas to be wrong? So, okay, there's there's probably three sorts of layers to this question, or to the answer to this question. The first layer is Durkheim provides two important services to the study of suicide, but more, more generally to the study of social action, because he just used suicide as an example of you know, a behavior, an extreme, often assumed psychological behavior at, to, to sort of demonstrate how his theoretical thinking worked. But you could apply it to homicide or domestic violence or even pro-social behavior. The thing that we can take away from Durkheim is, is twofold. One, so, social forces matter. Perhaps not so much at the macro level that Durkheim suggests, you know, right? We can bring it down to a, a more a more direct level of community or school or something more meso level. But the second thing is that that seems to be true. And in fact, you know, I would argue it's one of the few laws that sociology has, and that is the, the box in his fourfold typology of suicide, um, where low levels of integration lead to higher probabilities of suicide. This seems to be true across methodological approaches and across disciplines, psychology, epidemiology, just about every discipline that I've ever read, psychiatry, even molecular biology, when they're studying suicide, it seems to be the case that people who are isolated or, or weakly integrated into social groups and into social relationships suffer or from a greater probability of physical, social, mental, psychological you know, health issues. And suicide is just one of the, the possible outcomes. Same with the, the sort of deaths of despair that have become quite um, popular in the media and in social science. All of these things have to do with the breakdown of social relationships. So Durkheim's still relevant, right? So he still is important. And in that sense, we are building on Durkheim. And I'm, and I'm not really prepared to cast him out uh, like, a, like a Catholic priest casting out, you know, a demonic being inside of us. So he's good for that, right? Then, 
you know, that seems like a pretty low bar for how you're treating Durkheim. You're you're not willing willing to compare him to some like evil spirit haunting us. (laughs) No, no, he's not. He's not. And but, you know, we have to proceed with caution at all times with these classical theorists. So, um, you know, the, the next layer to that question, you know, are we building on and, you know, beyond those two things, I think we are building on Durkheim. I think that there's a practical professional side to this where, you know, even when we try to publish papers that are not Durkheimian at all, that we're exploring suicide, we know we can't really get away from it because it is something that everybody learns. They all, everyone that's a sociologist learns that Durkheim wrote a book on suicide and, you know, uh, it's really central to the discipline. And so citing him is relevant as it orients the reader, it, it connects you to, you know, this sort of eclectic discipline. And, and I don't necessarily think that's wrong or bad either. Now, do we go beyond him? And, you know, the, the flip side to having to cite him all the time is that it is hard to actually go beyond him. But I do believe, you know, Anna and I have pushed past him in certain ways. It's always with his thinking in mind that we're we're moving but you know i already mentioned that the the sort of relationship between these really macro level forces right so he's imagining integration and regulation like gravity um invisible powerful and sort of impossible to stop and i don't think that's wrong but it's really hard to translate something at that macro of a level at like the level of the society and ask a question like, why does somebody choose to die by suicide? Because it's almost impossible to see the direct relationship. So we can shift, for instance, to people living in a community, people in a peer group, people in a family, people in a school, in a prison, in an indigenous community. And we can start to ask, well, what is the integration and regulation like in these places? Why is it like that? what are the consequences for protection or sort of vulnerability to suicidality or, or again, any type of behavior. And so, you know, I think that there's some real powerful stuff to Durkheim inspiration and also practically uh, empirically. I think that there's a professional side that we have to sort of cite, but I also think that the time has sort of like come and probably passed us to some degree where having to just essentially call this particular suicide fatalistic or this suicide anomic or altruistic or egoistic to use his labels seems to be reductive. It seems to be constraining and it seems to also uh, restrict what other tools sociologists can bring to the, to the problem. And therefore it really restricts what made Durkheim or Weber or any of those classical theorists so amazing is that they didn't have the constraints of, a tradition weighing them down. They had pure sociological imagination and they would do whatever they wanted to do, however they wanted to do it. And they defined the rules of the game. And we, instead of seeing that and being like inspired by their creative methodological approaches or, you know, their theoretical leaps that they sometimes made, we simply just live in like the land of reproduction. You know, it's a low hanging fruit, easy to publish. If I just test one of Durkheim's old hypotheses with new data or a new statistical procedure, I can publish a paper, but that's not really, that's not really helping us understand or explain suicide, nor is that helping us prevent it. Right. And so 
we're hamstrung ultimately by Durkheim as much as we can be inspired by him. Okay, so if we take seriously how your relationship to Durkheim has changed, what does that do with our experience in the classroom? So when you're teaching Durkheim, do you do it in the same way? Do students need to go back to the original text? Uh, how, how has that shifted how you conceptualize the role of, of classic theory? So that is, is such a important question that I really think it's a timely question for the discipline. You know, for the last, I would say, 40 or 50 years at least, we've been teaching this sort of, you know, dichotomous set of classes, classical and contemporary. And, you know, classical has always been about St. Mark's and St. Durkheim and St. Weber. And because, you know, American sociology dominates, we had to add, add St. Mead. And now, you know, we have all sorts of new saints to add to this, this canon. And, you know, for about 10 years of teaching classical theory and sometimes contemporary theory, you know, I struggled with, okay, I, they, students have to know a little bit about these people. I mean, the discipline itself hangs together almost solely on the fact that we all learned about Marx, Durkheim, and Weber. Whether we like them or one of them or none of them, we all, I guess, learn it. And so there is that, again, professional side to this professionalization. But the last two years, I've really begun to grow really disenchanted with the approach that I've been taking and the approach that I felt the textbooks unwittingly imposed upon us and the, this sort of like status quo, the support of the status quo that if we don't teach them, you know, you're, you're handicapping your students and such and such and such. So I've been thinking a lot about it and, you know, I'd already been moving towards a more principles of approach, but they were still clustered around a theorist uh, and then another theorist and then another theorist. And now what I'm doing, what I just started doing this particular semester, so it's quite fresh in my mind, is that. I started the class by my usual lecture on, you know, what is scientific theory? How does that apply to sociological theory? And, you know, normally my the end of that lecture is, and this is why the classical theorists don't do real scientific theory. And so we won't really be talking about it. <laughs> but I am committed to actually trying to teach it that way. And so this week has been devoted, the second week has been devoted to actually demonstrating through Durkheim in particular and his theory of suicide, how abstraction works versus operationalization of variables and hypotheses, how a theory, as it is typically stated in a textbook, can actually be simplified down into a set of principles, and then thinking about how those principles can be measured in different ways. So when we say the structure of social relationships, right, that we then turn that question around to the class and say, well, how would we measure the structure of social relationships, right? And I mean, there's some obvious Durkheimian ways that we've done it, but then I bring in my own research and say, but there are other ways that we can start to operationalize. We have other tools at our disposal. For instance, I mentioned social capital. I mean, there's a whole tradition now surrounding how we measure social capital. Now we talk about it and social capital is deeply embedded in the ideas of integration. And so we, we, we sort of begin by, and, and you could do this with almost any theorist, as long as their, their, their theory is easily sort of distilled into principles. It doesn't have to be Durkheim's suicide. I just haven't used that because I know it, it really translates well. But then from there, instead of launching into the sort of 
you know, functionalist trilogy of Kopp, Spencer, and Durkheim. We're just launching into the Durkheimian weeks. You know, I, I shift more into the question or the problem to return to some of the things we talked about earlier in the podcast, and that is Durkheim's re- sort of overarching theme was, well, well, what generates integration? And so we can kind, we can read some of the texts. We can talk about how those texts are actually trying to measure integration, operationalize it, how they're trying to theorize uh, about different parts of society and changes that happen in society and, you know, what's changed since Durkheim's life. And that also opens the door when we when we sort of step back into a problem of integration, it opens the door to bringing in more contemporary texts like, you know, Goffman's interaction rituals or Collins's interaction ritual chains or Ed Lawler's affect theory of social exchange. And the students don't feel like uh, they're getting shortchanged on classical theory, you know, by seeing these more contemporary pieces, but rather they see these threads that really inform what we're up to. And the principles themselves don't change. The principles continue to inform these sort of contemporary manifestations of it. So it seems like you're not only breaking down this divide between classic and contemporary, but you're also breaking down a divide that I've always wondered about and seems quite arbitrary between theory and methods, right? Because it seems like you're always trying to ask, all right, so here's this concept, but what do we actually, what do we actually do with it? Absolutely. I mean, this is another, and again, there's pedagogical reasons. You can't, it would be really hard in a 15 week course or, you know, two 15 week courses to teach you know, full-blown methods and theory at the same time, right? I mean, it would be in some ways beneficial to sort of force students to take both at the same time and to have the professors kind of collaborate with each other, which, you know, of course, is has a whole bunch of logistical and practical issues, but it would be clearly beneficial. But yeah, I mean, the theorists themselves, the classics, again, if, if they were unconstrained by tradition they also were you know had to invent methodological approaches themselves and the methods were always inextricably tied to their theoretical you know interests so you know integration matters and so Durkheim's looking at ethnographic research and of course you know the ethnographic stuff as we know was wrong or it wasn't very good data but you know the idea of people assembling and doing stuff was clearly observable and interesting and you know, you can induce a whole lot of really fascinating ideas from that. And so, yeah, absolutely. I don't see the need to break those things down. And I mean, it's just like, it's like most of our dichotomies, right? Structure and agency, as you noted, classical and contemporary, these things are just heuristic devices that have the unfortunate, you know, consequences of becoming reified when we teach them as really real things. You know, like, I mean, I, I mean, I raise this question all the time, you know, as a perfect example like, what the heck is classic? Is it just before the 19th century turned into the 20th century? But then what about George Herbert Mead, right? And what about Talcott Parsons and, and you know, Merton writing in the 30s? Are they classical? Is the Chicago school classical? Because most of the famous Chicago school stuff happened in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And, you know, then there's the fact that some theorists are dead. Does that make them classical? I mean, Goffman doesn't write anymore. He hasn't written anything since 1983. Why is he contemporary? You know, and so, I mean, these are arbitrary distinctions, and they help us make decisions about how we construct our classes and how, as a discipline, we sort of reflexively think about ourselves. But, you know, in practice, they don't really provide any real valuable tools to students. 
at least the way that we construct them. That seems like a perfect and provocative way to end the discussion. And especially since I'd love to get you back on, you said this was your first semester trying out this really kind of revised approach to theory, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So I'd love to get you back on at some point to, to, to give feedback on whether it worked and what the students thought. Yeah. Great. Absolutely. Perfect. Thank you again for joining us. Okay. Thank you. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme song, undergraduate sociologists Alicia Rios and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.